Deborah, thank you so much. And I want to look at that first verse again of Luke chapter 18, verse 1. As we look at that, I want you to notice very carefully why Jesus tells this story. Jesus told his disciples a parable that, number one, they should always pray. And number two, they should not give up. Now, when I read that, and I realize that Jesus is getting close to the cross, so he knows he doesn't have very much time to live. And he doesn't have many moments in which he can tell stories. And now he has a very specific reason why he's going to tell this story. I want to look at it very carefully. Because it seems to me Jesus is suggesting here that there are going to be times that those who claim to be his followers, number one, aren't going to feel very much like praying. And number two, times are going to be so tough that they're going to feel like giving up. So here we are, over 2,000 years later, gathered here in Southern California, and I just want to ask you the question. Look inside of your life. Was he right? Was he right? Are there ever those times when you've prayed about something so long you just can't figure out when he's ever going to do it? Sometimes you've prayed about it so long that you just want to give up. Or, or maybe things are so easy or perfect for you all of your life that, that you can think about somebody else. <laughs> that you can think about somebody else. I'm going to tell you, this is the way life is, this side of eternity. And what we have here is a story by Jesus for real life in this very difficult world. That there are those moments where it's very hard to wait upon the Lord and we just can't quite see what he's doing. Very small illustration of this happened to me a few weeks ago. I found out I had a conflict. I had a flight that I was speaking uh, at a lectureship up in San San Francisco. But I also found out I had an appointment here, and and neither one of them seemed like they could be broken. So I had to change the time of the flight. So I had about five minutes left when I realized it. So I called the airline really quickly. And when I got finally through, not not to the airline, but at least to the uh, answering machine, um, it said to me, uh, this kind of a message that, that you've heard before, and I appreciated this part of it at least. They, they let me know how much time I'd have to wait. Your call will be answered in, and then a different voice comes in, 23 minutes. I said, 23 minutes? Who has that much time? So what, I just gave up and hung up. Now you might say to me, Pastor, that's such a small That's such a small thing. That's just a small irritation. And I know that's true. I just want you to know. But when the issue that we're waiting for is some painful illness that we're waiting to try to find some diagnosis and and, and some treatment for it, or a broken relationship that we've been praying for for so long and nothing seems to be changing, or, or a new job that we've lost our position a long time ago and we have applied for everything possible or so many other kinds of trials. I'll tell you, that time of waiting can be excruciating. We sometimes wonder where God is in all of this. We get to a point that Jesus' words become so true to us we, do, we don't know whether we should even pray again because we've done it so often. We want to give up so many times on this matter of faith. I tell you again, this issue that Jesus tells a story about is a very real one for us. Don't you think so? 
So I want us to think for just a moment about the first time that he told it. If, if you can put yourself back into the shoes of the people in his, in his world, you need to know that his own people, the Jewish people, were going through times that for almost all of them, they were very, very difficult. Uh, the economy was probably even worse than ours, and the people had no freedom because the Jewish people, the, the knew they were the chosen people of God, were at this point under the political oppression of Rome. Not, not only that, but even though they, they had God's word, it had been a long time since they had had a prophet. So there's a lot of discussion around the time of Jesus. Did, did God ever really speak? Why have there been no more prophets? Why is God silent? And I, I'm, I'm really sure that many of the people who'd read the old stories about the times when God would break in and send a prophet and actually speak to them began to wonder if they were true. Don't you think so? After so long, these are just old wives' tales. I, I think probably they thought, who could possibly believe that? But there were a few people among Jesus' own people who held on to the faith. And, and among them were people like the Pharisees. I know many times we think of the Pharisees uh, negatively, and there were some things that they had become very legalistic. But I'll tell you, they held on to the promises of God in the Old Testament, that God would not abandon His people. They believed, uh, perhaps as much as anything else, that God was going to send a Redeemer, a Messiah. And, and what they had read about this is that when Messiah comes and does His work, everything will be changed, things will be made new. Uh, he's going to come into Jerusalem and, and rebuild the city. And, and things are, are, the, the political oppression will be over. And, and they began to think too that those of, of them who, who kept God's ways and, and held on by faith to the promise... Uh, did things right, that when he got there, they were going to be the ones who had power and prestige, you see. And so now this Jesus comes onto the scene. And uh, even though he does some things that upset some of the people like the Pharisees, like spends a lot of time with tax collectors and touches lepers and immoral people, spends time with and promises them you know all those things that we've looked at at other times that Jesus did they still saw what he was doing that he was healing the sick that sometimes when there were thousands of people there and he had almost no much food not much food he could feed thousands of people and even he could raise the dead so they began to ask the question could he be could he be could he really be the messiah and now of course as we've been seeing over the last few weeks Jesus is getting close to Jerusalem by Luke 18, he is right up to the, to the time that he is going to enter in. And in just a few days, he is going to be having that triumphal entry where everybody thinks maybe he's the Messiah. And they wave palm branches saying, welcome, save us right now, is what they say, Hosanna. Right now, we want the kingdom. And so you can understand it when in chapter 17, verse 20, the Pharisees ask him this simple question. When is the kingdom of God going to come? When are you going to do it and put us into the places of power and overturn all of this evil and injustice? And if you read through the last part of chapter 17, you'll see Jesus' answer. It's kind of unexpected to them. Number one, he says God's rule is going to come. God will do his work. You can trust him. But it's not going to come the way that you expect it to come. So you'd better be open to whatever God does because it will be different from what you expect. And it may not be in the timing that you expect. Number two, the promised Messiah... You can see it is already among you. 
The kingdom of God is among you already. But you need to know this. You've forgotten to read some of the parts of the prophecies. Because in the prophecies, it not only tells about the ending of the time, but when the Messiah comes, there's going to be this time of suffering, which they didn't really like all that much, because if you walk too close to a suffering person, you might have to suffer yourself. And then he turned to them and said something that they didn't want to listen to, and that many people who smugly think I have the right to have a position of power when the Messiah comes may find out that they are the ones that Messiah judges. Now, you, can, you know, this was not the message they wanted to hear. <laughs> they wanted to say, all right, we've been asking for this. It's time for it right now, and we want it the way we want it to be. And yet he said, you have to learn to wait and to trust God. Now, does this have anything to say to us? Because now we're living in a later period. We know that the Messiah has come, and we have read the New Testament that tells us about the suffering of the Messiah on the cross and that they had missed that point. But we also know that he promises us that the work is going to be complete, uh, that a day is going to come. Read Revelation 20 and 21. God is going to create a world where there is no more pain, no no more sorrow, no more tears even, uh, no more death, no more joblessness. No more cutbacks in education in the public schools. All of these things that we look at and say, this isn't good. He's going to make everything right. But it hasn't happened yet. We're in that in-between time, aren't we? Between where he has done the work and given his life for us and given us his spirit and given us one another, but has not completed the work. And so you and I live in a time where our world is not yet complete, not yet perfect. Amen? We live in a world where where there's still a lot of injustice in this world and and it's filled with evil and it affects all of us so that God declares to you and me, I'm going to complete my work. My reign, my kingdom is going to come into this world, but you must learn to pray and to trust me. What do we do in this kind of world that God has put us in where times are so tough? And Jesus tells us a story, Luke 18, 1, telling us what? I'll tell you, Um, we always must pray. And as we do, we should never give up. I I think we need to look at what he's teaching here. So I I just want to walk through this very simple story so slowly because I think it's so important for us in the world that God has put us in. Lesson number one, I've tried to frame it in my own words. Jesus is teaching when we gather here on a Sunday morning that we need to settle in our hearts that God can be trusted. We must settle in our hearts that the God that we have come to worship today can be trusted even when we don't see what He's doing. Do you you remember my message from Genesis chapter 3? That in this perfect world, Garden of Eden, that sin first entered this world with, with the doubt of the goodness of God. Do you remember that? that the people began to doubt whether God's way was really good for them. So that there was this one tree that, that they were not to take from, and they began to think, oh, if, if we obey Him, life isn't going to be all that great. We have a better idea. We'll try to go it on our own. And that's where things began to go wrong. Well, Jesus takes up this very matter that we have to learn to trust the goodness and sufficiency of God. And He does it in such a striking and unforgettable way. What he does is, in the story, is he introduces a character who is very different from God. 
literature teachers, English teachers. He, he is an anti-type of God. Uh, he is the, the, the anti-God. He's one who has authority to bring about what's right. But he also has the authority to, to use his power for injustice or just to ignore what's going wrong. And so this is what we read in verse 2. In a certain town, Jesus said, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about people. Do You see the two descriptors of the judge right there. Number one, he didn't fear God at all. And you know, when you have a person who has no fear of pleasing God at all and gets into a place of authority, then that person feels, I am accountable to no one. And that is one of the most dangerous places that a person can possibly be. Because when we get into a place where we have some authority and we feel like we have to give account to no one at all, then we are liable to do anything. And that anything that we do is almost always something that we do just for our own pleasure and our own benefit. Because we feel like, who's going to, who's going to hold me to account? So I might as well do what pleases me. And for this man, the problem is compounded by the second quality, and that is he didn't care about people either. And therefore, when he had authority, he didn't care about making a decision that was best for somebody else. Or even, he didn't even care what anybody thought about him. Now, when you, when you read this, you're with me, aren't you? You know that the greatest evils and the greatest scandals um, in history have come about when someone gets into a place of authority and feels like I am a law unto myself. You can see that with Pol Pot in Cambodia. You can see that with, with Hitler in Germany. We can even see it closer to us in this last decade where we've had all the corporate scandals that at the end of the day, the one who had the authority in the corporation got to a point where he or she felt, I have no one really over me. And you say, well, they had the board, but you know what happened there. CEOs would bring other CEOs from other places onto their boards, though. So they were just watching out for, for one another. And what happens is when you have no accountability, you make decisions that only further something that brings benefit to you and nothing else. And, and as you followed with the, with the many, many well-known, uh, powerful people who've gotten into a place of prestige and have had moral falls, whether athletes or actors or, or anyone, when you get to that point, that when this comes out and it devastates all of their relationships, the answer almost always is, I got to a point where, yes, my parents brought me up to believe that there's a right or wrong, but um, I got to a point where I thought it didn't apply to me. And it, it leads us in all sorts of directions. So you see what we have here in this judge, don't you? This is a, a man who's not going to care about justice. Th those of us who've grown up in, a, in, in the U.S., uh, our, our notion of, of justice comes about from a view of right and wrong, um, it's a guilt kind of a culture, so if you do wrong, you feel guilty. Well, he wasn't going to feel guilty about anything because nobody was going to hold him accountable. And any of you who have may, may have grown up in more of a shame-based culture, I'll do good things because my parents or friends will shame me, shame upon you. This man didn't care what anybody thought. He just didn't care at all. And do you see what Jesus is saying? God is not like that. God is not like that. The God we have come to worship, His being is the very definition of what is loving. When we look at what is loving, we look at how God treats people, and we look at the cross particularly. 
God's very character is the definition of what is just and what is right. When we wonder what, what is good in this world, we take time to look at what Jesus was like and what he did. And so we look and see here that God is so different. Look at how Jesus puts it in verses 6 and 7. Listen to what this unjust judge says. You know, when at last he acted to bring something good for the woman because she just worn him out. I mean, she just worn him out. And then he puts God into contrast. And will not God bring about justice? All that I want to say is this. If you're walking through some very difficult times, and you, you feel like, I, I'm not quite sure what to do. That the place where, where it begins for you and me to be able to walk through those times is to ask ourselves whether, whether we truly trust God. Who says, I will bring my work to completion. I have a timetable that's different from yours. But you must ask yourself if you're willing to trust me to be powerful enough to make a difference and to be good enough to make a good difference. I've been thinking a lot in recent days again about John 13 and 14 where Jesus was going to leave his disciples just before he went to the cross and he drew his disciples in and around him. And do you remember what had happened? They had left everything to follow Jesus. Many of them had lost their careers. And some of them had been cut off by their families uh, because they had followed Jesus. And then John 12, the political authorities had abandoned them. And then the religious authorities would have nothing to do with Jesus and his followers. So by the time you get to John 13, these disciples who'd left everything behind, they had nothing except they had Jesus. And I think I've told you, that'll preach. Yeah, you have nothing but Jesus, but that's enough. Right? That's good. And then Jesus turns to them and says, I'm going to. Do you feel it? The Bible tells us their hearts were troubled. One of the greatest understatements in the Bible. And when Jesus turns to the disciples who are so angry, uh, wanting something so different, begging him to do something different, you know what? You remember what he says to them. You trust God. Trust me. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. And what I'm doing, I'm doing for you. Trust me. And so today, perhaps you bring some burden into the life of the church today. And I want to tell you, this is where it begins. And if you have these cards that I put for, in, for, in the worship folder for our, worship, uh, for our Lenten season, the first question as we continue our journey that I want us to ask this morning is, is the one that you have there. Do I trust God enough that I am able and willing to wait Upon his timing. This is hard, isn't it? But this is where it begins. What do we really believe about God as we gather here today? Second lesson. When we trust that God is sufficient and good, we must second embrace God's declaration that he loves us. We must embrace this fact that the Bible repeatedly tells God is speaking to you and me and he says, I love you. Uh, we come to the second character in the story here, the, the widow who is experiencing the injustice. Look at verse 3. There was a widow, Jesus said, in that town who just kept coming to the judge with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. 
So you feel it, don't you? This woman was in trouble. <laughs> and it had been going on a long time. And she knew somebody could make a difference. So she just keeps, she keeps coming. But she has some problems, some big obstacles. What obstacles does she have? Number one, we've already seen it. The judge is unjust. So he's not going to bring about justice. Not on his own. Number two, the woman is a woman. Amen. (laughs) But in first century Palestine, a woman wasn't even to show up at court. She wasn't even supposed to be there, so the authorities would have been trying to keep her out. Number three, the woman is a widow. So she didn't even have a husband to do what husbands were supposed to do. Namely, to go into that court and to stand up for their wives and for their children. And then number four, the, the, the widow is poor. She can't even bribe this judge who might have been swayed to do something that was right if he saw some personal benefit out of it. But here's the point. Just as Jesus was drawing this contrast that God is not like the unjust judge, so too here he wants us to have this contrast that you and I are not like the widow. Where do I see that? Look again at verse 7. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? who cry out to him day and night. I want you to notice that phrase. God's chosen ones. God's chosen ones. This is a very meaningful term for those who uh, knew the Old Testament. Uh, When you think about the term, even we can understand it. It means God knows you and me. It means specifically his love has been directed toward us really means what I think about just so simply. It means he wants us in his family. He knows us as our, we are and he wants us in his family. Do you see the difference between the widow and the way Jesus is trying to say, I want to see you to see yourself in a, in, in a different sort of a way. The woman was a stranger to the judge. We are God's chosen children that he loves. Uh, the woman had no advocate, but repeatedly in the New Testament, we're not alone. Jesus would say in John 14, I know I've I've got to go, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to leave you one another so you love one another, but I'm going to leave you my spirit. And he even calls him the advocate. And in Romans chapter 8, we are told that Jesus himself becomes our high priest and our advocate. Those here who are attorneys, your main role is to go and to make sure that your client goes to court not being alone. That someone who has some capability is going to stand there with him or her. And that's what God says, I pledge to do for you because I love you. You are my chosen ones. Now, sometimes we find this so hard to believe. Sometimes we can read it and we say, in our heads, I see it. God tells me that he loves me. He loves me so much that Jesus gave his life for me. And yet we know ourselves, right? We know ourselves. We know where we have fallen short yet again. There's this quote from Pastor Tim Keller that I've shown you so often during my two and a half years here. But here it kicks in again with with regard to this story that Jesus tells. Just look at it. These two sides of us as we gather here as God's people. Number one, we are more sinful than we could ever dare to imagine. Is that true? Do we know that when we see people going in wrong directions, even someone like the unjust judge, all those tendencies are inside of us? But at the same time, we are more loved than we could ever dare to hope. 
these are the two parts of us as the children of God. God's made us in his image. We've walked away. But God keeps calling us back, keeps calling us back and saying, I love you with an everlasting love. And this point of knowing that we are loved by a God who could speak things into being and who can bring about justice is the thing that's going to make it possible for us to wait when things happen that we don't understand. Because a loving God is going to do what is best for us, but sometimes, sometimes we have to wait upon it. And this is why in Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul would pray for people going through tough times in Ephesus. And remember when he prays it, he himself was in a tough time. He was in prison when he prays this. What, do you remember what he prayed? I told you in the sermon that I preached from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. This is my prayer for you as the people here at Lake Avenue Church. It's the one I pray all the time for you. And I pray it again this morning. And the prayer is this. Paul said, I pray that you, who have been rooted and established in love, talking there about the family of God, made up of people of all sorts of failures and backgrounds. I pray that you who have been rooted and established in love may have the power that you need together with all God's people to grasp, to grasp what? How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And then he, I don't want you to just know it in your head. I, I need you to know it from your, with the entirety of your being and to know that love that goes beyond any kind of human knowing so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. By that, have, have the strength, know the strength of God to be able to make it through the difficulties in this world. Because when we know that we are loved by God, we can wait until He completes His work. So my second question, do I really, really, really believe that God loves me and wants what is best for me. Which brings me to the third lesson. Believing those things, then we must learn to wait and pray as God does His work in His way and in His time. Here I want us to look at the beginning and the end of the story again. Jesus told His disciples a parable to show them, one, that they should always pray, and to not give up. And then at the end, God is going to see that his chosen ones get justice. Here, I just want to take a moment to think about Jesus' call to pray. Because sometimes we read this story and we wonder what it is that Jesus is teaching us about prayer. I mean, on one side, we know that, that he's saying God is not like the judge, the unjust judge. We know that. And, and we're not like the widow. We're the chosen ones. But then when we apply it to prayer, we say, well, then maybe we should deal with God the way that the widow dealt with the unjust judge. Well, that, that makes no sense. Uh, we're dealing with our father. It, it's, uh, we don't have to do it the way she did with this nonstop begging with this ju uh, judge. So what am I saying? Uh, let me try to specify what I'm sure Jesus is not teaching about prayer. I'm sure he's not teaching that prayer is a way of just wearing God out until at last he relents and does what we want him to do. Just as in verse 5, that just just gets worn out. And the word that he uses is, I'm getting a black eye. I don't exactly know what that image is, but I can kind of get a sense of it. You just get beaten and beaten and beaten until you feel like, all right, I'll give in. That's not how we deal with God in prayer. I'm also quite sure that it's not telling us that prayer's effectiveness is measured by God in terms of the quantity of our words. Well, how many words has he or she prayed? 
well, okay, I guess I'll have to do it now. I'm, I'm just, I'm sure, and sometimes we think it might be teaching that. I'm also sure that prayer is not that we have to keep repeating exactly the same request because God may have been too busy to have heard it the first time. I'm just sure that that's not what is being said. And I really know that it's not that we have to keep badgering God because look, all of these people who go to Lake Avenue Church and just think all of the churches all over the world, he has so many requests, if I've got to keep badgering him so he'll put mine on the front burner. Kind of like maybe you feel like with your pastor sometimes, you send an email. I wonder how many emails that man gets. I guess I'll send enough of them until finally mine gets to the top of the list. God has much more capability than your pastor does. Just just know that. And I know this too, that prayer is not just putting on some show of emotion and piety until finally God says, well, that was an impressive prayer. That was eloquent. And his decision is swayed. All right, it's easy for me to tell you what it's not. What is he saying? Bottom line, the same thing the Bible tells us all the way through. That prayer is a relationship between a a loving, perfect father and his children. And if you've ever had a close relationship, either with a parent or with a friend, because I know sometimes there are broken relationships in our homes, then you know the way that those relationships should be functioning. That when there's a deep burden on your heart, you talk about it with the person who cares about you. Uh, The one who really cares wants to hear. How often? As long as it's a burden on your heart. And even if you think that friend might be able to do something more and, and, and he or she says, well, I don't think right now. Or the parent says, well, not right now. Parents, we've had to do that so many times. You still come back again. What are you saying, Pastor? Should I just keep praying the same prayer over and over? I'll tell you this. In a healthy relationship, that when that thing remains such a concern to us, the one who loves us will even bring it back to us. Haven't you experienced that? So how's it going with that situation? Are you willing to still wait for me to do this because there's still something more I want to do? In my own personal experience of prayer, Sometimes when I'll come back to God and there's something I've been praying about for months and months and months and it seems to be absolutely no different and I almost apologize. Father, I'm sorry to bring this back again, but I want to bring this back to you and I feel like he receives me. But at the same time, something changes inside of me as I bring this back again to God. One of the things that happens is this. Sometimes I had thought the first couple of times I prayed this prayer that I was going to be done in by this problem. And here I find out months later I'm not done in. I'm, I'm still there. We're still there. And so there must be something more to be done. And in so many ways our lives begin to be shaped as we learn to wait upon the Lord. It's, it's kind of like Paul where he had at least three times that he prayed about this thing in Second Corinthians that he called a thorn in the flesh. Do you know about that? We don't know what that was. Something he wanted God to take away, whether that was a physical pain or, or perhaps a moral temptation that he just couldn't get over. I, I want to get rid of this thing. And it wasn't him thinking, oh, I, I think I have a new way to approach this. I think if I pray it this way, it'll be much more eloquent. Maybe God will do what I want him to do. No, as he kept coming back to his father, God would say, I'll give you more grace as you wait upon me to do my work. The problem, of course, is how hard it is for us to wait. And how many times I've been asked, why is God waiting for this? 
And as I've said so many to so many of you, as your pastor, sometimes I don't know. There are times when things happen in our lives that just make no sense to me. I, I do know some things. I, I know that when the disciples in John 13 and 14 really were begging Jesus not to, to die, that now that I look at it from my perspective, I am so glad he did not say yes to them. You and I would have no hope if Jesus... you see that? And then I read a place like the book of Acts with this great young man, Stephen, who was stoned. He was the one with great promise in the church. Why on earth was he was stoned? I can imagine what his family must have thought. And yet now looking at it from this perspective, we know that Stephen has eternal life. But also that was the time, first time when the disciples finally were willing to get outside of Jerusalem. Until then, they just stayed cloistered there in Jerusalem. The gospel may not have reached Southern California. If, if God had said, yes, I'm not going to let Stephen die. So in some ways, we don't know what he's doing. We know there are things he wants to do in us. But we, what we must learn to do is to continue praying and never give up. And so my third question, what is the weightiest matter that you feel in your life right now? Is, is there something that you have kept bringing to God and maybe you've just stopped doing that? Will you, maybe with a code, I haven't given you much space there, perhaps even use the back. What is the weightiest matter in your life that you need to just bring to God again and say, Father, I give it to you. I still ask you to take that away or to heal that or whatever. I still ask you, Father, how much I long for that. But Father, I entrust it to you. Take some time to do so because God is worthy of your trust. Finally, we must keep the faith. That's an old phrase, isn't it? That means be faithful. Do what is right even before we see fully. We must keep the faith while we wait and pray. Look again at verse 18, the very ending of it. I tell you, Jesus said, God is going to see that his people, his chosen ones, get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, the question really is, will he find faith on the earth? I mean, basically what Jesus is saying is this. We know that God is going to keep his word. Evil is going to be judged. Justice will prevail. When God's time comes to make all things new, he will do it thoroughly and he will do it swiftly. But the real point is, when he does, will he find anybody who's remained faithful to him? See, in the short run, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about people like these Pharisees who are wanting his kingdom right now and even are going to be cheering him on when he walks into Jerusalem and within a week they absolutely reject him and what is crucifixion. See, they, their faith didn't even last a week. But, it, but it, in the long run, it's a message to us. Will we learn to trust God and be faithful to him even when the going is tough, we cannot see what God is doing and we don't understand one part of the life of the widow that Jesus makes sure we apply to ourselves is this. She did not give up. That's what he drives home in verse 1. Don't give up. And he drives it home again. Will you be found faithful in verse 8? So I've been thinking about the issues that people throughout my years of ministry have brought to me when people who truly long to live a life of faith were just about to give up. I may not mention where you are now, but I'll just tell you some of them because so many of our church people wrestle with these. Times of sickness and pain. 
after years of going to doctors, coming and having the church pray like in James 5 and anoint with oil, pray for God's healing, having seen sometimes in the context of that prayer other people being healed. There are people who have found no relief to the pain and no diagnosis and they just feel like giving up. And Jesus says, even that physical pain will not last forever. So keep praying and do not give up. One of the biggest ones I've thought about are all these relationship struggles. Sometimes they're within the family, parents. Sometimes you you prayed for your children. They're not in church this morning again. Children praying for your parents, husband for wife, wife wife for husband. It just seems like nothing has happened with all of this prayer. Sometimes it's in different kinds of relationships. Uh, A couple who so desperately wants children. Uh, Someone who so much wants to get married, and especially in a society or a church where family and marriage is so much valued. What's wrong, we, we think? What's wrong with me? And so many times we have to hear Jesus saying, God has a a different way right now. It really is better. And some people who have been stuck in abusive marriages could give testimony sometimes to that. But what he says when you walk into those periods is the same thing. I'm going to tell you a story so that you will always pray. And do not give up. One of the times that just seems to me most often for those of us who really are longing to honor God is in those times of our own personal failures. I mean, we read Romans 7. And if you haven't read that in a while, read it again, where the Apostle Paul talks about this inner struggle that he had. The the, the things that I should not do, those are the very things I do. And the things that I do, those are the things I'm not doing. Oh, woe to me, he says. Is there any hope? How many of us can read that and say, oh, oh, at the end he was still faithful. We wonder, why is it taking me so long to get better? We come here at church and we've got to hear Jesus saying to you, you've got to hear this. I know who you are and I know where you failed and I know the struggle you're going through, but I love you. So do not give up the battle. Don't give in to that sin. Don't you give in to that sin. But in the midst of the battle, always pray and never give up. And and maybe the most difficult time for us to hear this word and, and apply it is times of loss. Loss is hard for us. I'll tell you when it's something trivial like a set of keys or homework or something like that. But when the loss begins becomes so personal, we get older. Vision starts declining. Hearing starts to be lost. And then we start losing people we love. You know, one of the greatest gifts God gives us is the beauty of enriching our lives through loving relationships, right? But the power of a loving relationship to enrich our lives is matched only by its power to devastate our lives when that person we love is taken away. What does Jesus say on the way to the cross? I'm going to do something that's going to take away even the sting of death. I know what I'm doing. Pray and do not 
give up. And so my last question. Am I willing to entrust every matter to the Lord and be faithful while I wait for His timing? This is the heart of following Jesus. We enter in by faith, right? And we continue by faith. May I show you that first verse one more time. Jesus told his followers a parable. And he told it so that when we as his followers gather in the midst of a very difficult world, we will always pray and we will never give up to his glory.